welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt. And I'm Tim. We like to explore the science behind our behaviors and decisions with key authors and academics. We like to peel back the layers and apply those insights to improve our lives. And in this episode, we had the good fortune of connecting with Martin Lindstrom between his many different flights. And we talked about his recent book, The Ministry of Common Sense. Now, we covered a lot of ground, including how John F. Kennedy was a trendsetter for the way businessmen dress today, how we need more human-to-human connections, and why carefully disembarking a plane one row at a time during the pandemic sounds very safe until the passengers are crammed into a bus like sardines. (laughs) Where the hell is the common sense in that, Tim? Tell me. Tell me, where is the common sense in that? It is a great story, and he shared many of them with us uh, in the short time that we had available. Overall, the thesis of Martin's book is ask the question of why people in the Western world, especially business leaders, have left some common sense approaches to getting things done in favor of silly rules that end up degenerating company culture and stifling creativity. In Martin's mind, we need to have a conversation that addresses how the pendulum has, in his words, gone too far, and it's time to make some adjustments. We want to give a big shout out to Whitney Johnson, who suggested that we speak with Martin. So thank you, Whitney. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> oh, and just, just uh, you can check out our cool conversation with Whitney in episode 285 about how to use her S-curve to make your personal and professional journeys more effective. Now, Tim, that is definitely some common sense. Oh, Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And if you enjoy our conversation with people like Whitney or Martin, please take a moment to give us a rating or a quick review. Now, it may not seem like common sense, but it is how the podcast game is played. Uh, yeah. The more reviews and ratings we get, the more often podcast services will recommend us to listeners who are exploring for these types of topics. So thank you in advance for your help. Yeah, and, and thank you to all of you who have left us a review recently. Like For instance, we got a lovely review from Gratitude Growth Giving a couple of weeks ago, and it really made our day. Mm-hmm. It was just really nice. And so, so thanks so much for sharing that. And for now, we just want to encourage you to sit back with a 90-proof pour of common sense and enjoy our conversation with Martin Lindstrom. Martin Lindstrom, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you, Tim. It's great for you to be here. We are really excited to to have you for even a short period of time. Let's get started. Coffee or tea? Which would be your preference? None. None? I don't drink coffee. I don't drink tea. You see, Tim, the issue here is that I work with coffee companies for so many years. And I've learned that when you drink coffee or tea, you're borrowing energy from tomorrow. <laughs> I don't want to borrow energy from tomorrow. I'll be, I want to be present. I want to be here. Ah, interesting. Wow. Okay. Words of wisdom already. Yes. <laughs> love this. Love it. Would, would you rather have dinner with your favorite musician or your favorite athlete, Martin? Which would you rather prefer? Definitely musician. Yeah, okay. definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I think that don't get me wrong here, musicians are really good at creating a sense of belonging mm. and a sense of tribe. And in fact, if you're really good at creating music and in- entertaining, I think that you're creating a mini religion and it's something which I'm very fascinated about. So definitely uh, musicians. Very cool. 
All right. And, and, and anyone come to mind? Just well, this isn't sort of this part of the speed round, but just curious if there's a musician or two that you'd like to have dinner with. Yeah, Tina Turner for sure. Oh wow! Listen, I met Tina Turner twice. Uh, once when she was singing a birthday song for someone else, not me, in a hotel randomly, <laughs> and the other one where a friend of mine was trying a bra in a uh, dressing room in Zurich in Switzerland and where she jumped out and they talked about the size of the bra. I'm not kidding. And I was, <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm you can't saying, make this I'm up. Just, I'm just quoting the <laughs> yes. reality, okay? So don't attack yeah. me here. But but I was so, you know, Tina Turner for me is um, in, in every aspect of life, transformative. She uh, was the first, I think one of the first to stand up against uh, the whole sexual issues uh, with her husband. Yeah. She was the black and white, the whole contrast and conflict around that whole topic. And she also uh, tapped into to Buddhism in a way which has been extraordinary. And I think those factors has defined an icon which I hope will stay on planet Earth for a long time. Sadly, she's not yeah. doing any concerts. And mm -hmm. sadly, I've never seen her perform, but mm. that would be the person. All right, I still have the mental image of what, you know, coming out of a changing room. So I, I can't get that out of my head at this point. But Why are you blushing right now? I can see it. That's uh, <laughs> for all the listeners here. We have cameras on right now. Just, you know. Okay. <laughs> oh, my God. This is already so much fun. Um, okay, well, this is a much less interesting question. But which is worse, the Zoom call where everyone keeps freezing up or the 30-minute slide PowerPoint presentation that could have been summed up in one slide? They're both equally horrible. And I do think that uh, my opinion, as you know, I don't have a phone and I haven't had a phone for, for five years. And the reason why I don't have a phone is the three reasons why. And this is not something I knew before, but it's something I learned after. First of all, when you have a phone and you're standing waiting for someone and the person hasn't shown up, what's the first thing you do, Kurt? Kind of look down at it and you start. You grab yeah, your phone yeah. and do something with your phone, anything so you don't look like a complete loser, right? <laughs> <laughs> the second thing is you don't see details anymore. We don't see anything. We just take a screen in front of our heads. Uh, we don't. We didn't even see our newborn baby walk because it was a sort of a screen in front of the device and the reality. But the third thing is really the worst. We never get bored anymore. And boredom is the foundation for creativity, is that pause in our life, creating a difference. Um, and we don't have pauses uh, anymore. So when it comes to a PowerPoint show or a Zoom call, both of them have that fundamental problem. First of all, on Zoom calls, you're not allowed to think. If I'm thinking for more than one second, the first question will be, Martin, you're mute. <laughs> so uh, you just can't even think anymore. Or the PowerPoint thing, you lose eye contact. And even worse, you follow a linear script. You don't follow other people and their rhythm. And I, I feel that we derailed. It's become these triple safety nets around ourselves where we have so much of a stretch jacket, you know, basically consuming our behavior that there's no personality, you know, going through that whole band-aid around our bodies. So we end up with a a bland 
uh, outcome which is meeting another blend outcome with other people doing exactly the same and the result is net net really bad right martin i'm, I'm kind of afraid because i think you see me you, you have some video of me when i'm ever i'm sitting in a, in a line and i'm, I'm looking <laughs> at my phone because exactly it is it's what we do right it, we yeah. don't take that time to just sit and look around be bored as you say to kind of yeah. allow that opportunity for your brain to just muse on things and do different pieces, which leads me to the last speed round question, the last one here. So is technology, in your opinion, one of the biggest factors contributing to the death of common sense? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. There's no doubt about that. And we know that for a fact. There's a recent study uh, conducted by MIT which shows that technology uh, has increased the uh, complexity in our universe with around 17%. We're actually mm. 17% less productive than we were before we had technology because we are hitting all those brick walls uh, because we don't trust each other anymore. We have all these authentication issues, these layers of passwords, these uh, what what's the UL, what's the, what's the QR code, what's this and that. Um, wow. And all that stuff is creating this stretch jacket, as, so to speak, around our lives. Um, I'm not anti-technology, don't get me wrong. One of the things we're doing now is to create the largest study in the world about the metaverse. But what I also have to say is that if you really want to understand the world, step back and see things in the perspective. And by perspective, I mean, don't be part of it. If you're too close to the forest, you can't see it for just trees. Mm. Um, I do think we're all drowning in technology at the moment. We're addicted, we're seduced by it, but we also all hate it. When I tell people I don't have a phone, not even nine out of 10, but 95 out of 100 tell me, oh my gosh, I wish I could do the same. And my answer always is, well, then do it. Mm. Um, because if I, if I can do it, most people could do it, I would claim, right? I'm curious, did you always, at what point in your life do you become aware of this sort of willingness to step back so that, because I, I think it's a, a gift in some ways, but maybe it's a skill. Maybe you were really intentional about it. Could, could you share your thoughts about that? I, I think it happened in 1994. So I think both you, Tim, and, and Kurt, you are old enough to remember when the World Wide Web was invented in 1994. And I was one of the first to surf the entire internet, 192 pages. I'm not kidding. <laughs> and it was, whole, the entire internet the entire was 192. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was crazy. I literally did it. And I wrote a book a, a year later about how to build brands on the net because I was so intrigued by this whole thing. But I did a, a deal with my, uh, with my partner back then. This is 30 years ago, you know, nearly. And the deal was that um, we would have two lives. Uh, I would be the front figure and my partner would be uh, not present online because we knew back then that privacy would be the biggest piece of luxury on planet Earth. Mm. So I decided to have a very public persona. But what you will notice is if you do a search of me online, and I'm not a celebrity, don't get me wrong, that's not <laughs> the issue. But if you do a search on me online, you will see that you won't find a single picture of me where I'm not wearing black. I'm wearing black on every single photo. And that was my way to sort of communicate. This is my public persona. Ah. If you do see me wearing other colors, it's because I'm in private, but you won't be able to find that photo. And I sort of very much on purpose separated private and work. And I did it because I do think and do believe we need to go through transitions. Think about this. I'll tell you a story. Some years ago, I was on a holiday with 
with Malcolm Gladwell and we went to Zambia and in, in Zambia, Malcolm was sitting there with me on the bench and we were looking at people and the animals. And he said to me, have you noticed how people wear a hat in Zambia, but in the rest of the world, we don't wear a hat anymore. Why, why is that? Malcolm Gladwell asking that question, so I thought a little bit about it for about a yeah. year. Uh, and my answer was, and, and still is today, coming out of 1996, sorry, 1969, the year where Jeff Kennedy, in fact, was the first president in history not wearing a hat during the inauguration. Yeah. And it was really a, a milestone. It sounds crazy, but it was the first time where private and work was mer- was as it was merging. I guess, and I presume back in the days, uh, men at least would put on a hat when they would go to work and be in a work mood. Mm. And when we go back home, we'll hang up the hat on the wall and we'll be in a private mood. Yeah. And then later on, the tie due to Steve Jobs will disappear. And then later on, uh, women and men were both sharing the idea of having an office in the pocket called the smartphone. And then recently, because of COVID-19, we were all sitting in our bed, having a pipeline of bureaucracy piped straight into our, <laughs> our living rooms. Um, so suddenly, the idea of B2B and B2C, business to business, business to consumer, merged. That's the reason why I call it H2H, human to human, because there is no such thing as those two worlds. We all impacted equally, whether that's private or work. But... What I'm saying with all this is that we also need to have zones of separation. You can't merge those lives too much because you need to recharge your batteries. I mean, when I'm sitting in a car from Manhattan to JFK, let's say, most people will be sitting hammering away on their smartphone, answering all the emails. And I did that in the past. And I felt this kind of relief while when I arrived at Terminal 5. Uh, and only to just have 200 emails coming back in the mm-hmm. face of me, right? You know, an hour later. But the transition time, the transformation from one environment to another was non-existing. And that is really an important moment because that is what's helping us to defragment our knowledge base. Just like computers in the old days were yeah. defragmenting, our brains have to do the same. That's the reason why we are, uh, know, are having dreams in the night. Uh, so coming back, to, to your questions, I think that it's super important to have these transitions in, in life. And those are, in a, I'm always having an existential crisis at the moment, I think. So that's the reason why I separate private and work as much. I wish people would do that. I hope they'll do it. It's very difficult with the smartphones. But if you do it, you will realize at some point it's actually worth doing it because you're recharging your life in a different way, right? Oh my gosh, there's so many different ways that we could dissect and go into that. But we have a limited amount of time, and I do want to get to the, to the, your book. So, you know, we have uh, read The Ministry of Common Sense, How to Eliminate Bureaucratic Red Tape, Bad Excuses, and Corporate BS, or bullshit, as we like to say here. Um, and so um, with that, just can you tell it for our listeners, what what's the book about? What's the main thesis from the book? And, and what got you to write it. I think that's the interesting part for me. I think the the issue right now is that we're all human beings, yet we are increasingly caught by bureaucracy to a degree where we feel our souls and our minds are cut into small pieces and restricted in ways which are not even funny. And sometimes it just simply doesn't make sense. Let me tell you a story. There's two, actually three young kids sitting in a dorm room in California smoking weeds. They're completely off their head. 
and they shot photos of each other and posted it online. And the day after, hell broke loose. Now, mom and dad were furious. Are you smoking weeds? You must be kidding. And of course, these three kids put their heads together and they said, we wish you could retract those photos. And guess that? That was the foundation of Snapchat, today a $100 billion company. What happened here was this. They recruited like-minded kids, all of them having felt what they felt in that moment. Everyone was part of this tribe that had a similar sense of belonging. And that led to that company, which, as you know, later on, as Mark Zuckerberg tried to acquire the company for a couple of billions, and they said no, and people thought they were insane, and in fact, they were not. But the reality was that it began with a foundation called common sense. Common sense is the ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and feel what that person is feeling. They felt it because they were that person. Now, common sense is directly correlated with empathy. Empathy is exactly the same. The ability to put yourself in the shoes of another person and feel what the person is feeling. And what's interesting is common sense and empathy both have an existential crisis. Why is that? Because when we sit in front of a screen, when we sit with all our restrictions and numbers and rules and regulations and compliance and guidelines and all that stuff, which we increasingly have become aware of and live by, a little bit like this frog. How do you kill a frog? You put them into a cold pot of water and mm. slowly heat it. That's where we are. We're slowly heating it. And the consequence of that right now is that we become accustomed to the fact that we have to put in a 17-digit password code, which is changing every third night, and it has to be double verified. And by the way, when you want to do it, then you can't use the same code as you did three days ago. And my mom was his dad. I've used her name in all sorts of different ways. You're not allowed to do that because you used that 17 years ago. And that type of thing just disappears out of the window. And we are treated like we are robots, right? So I was so furious in the end of the day, pissed off, to be honest, to use your languages. And I felt that, where is common sense? And I realized that common sense is having an existential crisis in our world right now. Whether that is you working in a company and you're sick and tired of those rules and travel guidelines, which you have to fill out these forms, and it doesn't make sense. You can't travel uh, in a certain way without all sorts of paperwork done to death. Or me recently flying where I was sitting on my plane and we had to disembark one road at a time because of COVID-19, nothing against that, except that when you elegantly were disembarking this plane, we all went down the staircase into a bus. Okay? <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> and it was like a big teeth, you know, a jaw. She just walked into this. These sardines were walking inside this bus, right? And it was so cramped, this bloody bus. I couldn't even see the sign behind a person which was saying you had to have a safety distance of six feet, right? It was just like ridiculous, oh, right? And no. this is, this is, it pissed me off because it's everywhere. And what it does is, it minimizes us and our lives and our creativity and our way of being and behaviors because we are petrified of breaking these rules because everyone else follows them. And with that, com company cultures dies, creativity yeah. dies, free thinking dies, 
Mm. Happiness dies. So I thought, you know what? I want to write the Ministry of Common Sense. A Ministry of Common Sense, by the way, exists. It is true. It's not just a title. It's something we've introduced across the world, and it makes people happy. And I like to make people happy. Was there a? I love the the plane story. That that's just unbelievable. But was there an experience that you had that was just gripped you and said, "Yeah, holy shit, I've got to write this book because there's just." Yeah, it was actually many years ago. It was many years ago when I was working with a wonderful person. His name was Charlie Bell. He's later on passed away. He was the CEO of McDonald's. Mm-hmm. Past, past, past uh, CEO of McDonald's and. Um, Charlie and his team asked me if I could uh, redesign the Happy Meal for for McDonald's. And I thought it was a wonderful challenge because uh, if I could make it healthy, no, I would have been contributing to planet Earth, I felt, at least to the kids in the world. So I came up with this crazy crazy idea with my team that, well, the objective was to, if we could make a six-year-old eat broccoli, right? Wouldn't Mm -hmm. that be a bit of an achievement? So Mm -hmm. we used the power of narrative, the Bushes in the forest would be the broccoli, the cucumber would be the murder weapon, the tomato would be the blood, right? What an amazing story. <laughs> and we created this amazing story with Shrek and Disney and all this stuff, Pixar. And the kids loved it, right? We did a pilot in Germany. The parents loved it. Suddenly, little Peter was actually eating broccoli. Um, even the franchisees thought this was pretty groundbreaking. <laughs> So I went to the United States of America to a little place which you may be familiar called Obrook. Obrook. Obrook yeah. is out at Chicago. It was back then the headquarters of McDonald's. Yeah. I showed them this amazing piece. And they said to me it was interesting. They said in a special way, interesting. And they dragged it on so it's interesting. It's interesting. Mark is interesting. <laughs> and I sort of I thought, oh, yeah, they love it. I went back to you and said, they love it. I think it's interesting. I didn't know there's different variations of that. It's like when you say, God bless you. It's just this type of, you know, God bless, God bless you, my dear. Okay, then you know what you're really doing, right? Interesting. Mine was interesting. So it took about McDonald's about two years, and they thought about this interesting idea. And then we had the big launch of the new Happy Meal, and it was this time. Happy Meal infused with this sugar bun. It had its French fries, and this time it had an apple sliced. Wow. And that was where I realized wow. that uh, there was an issue. And what was the issue? Long story short, the issue was that the bureaucracy, what I call the immune system, the defense mechanism for chains, had killed the idea. And this is what one and everyone is experiencing every day in their lives. And I thought to myself, why was that happening? What did I do wrong? So for more than a decade, I employed two psychologists to follow me at work and mm-hmm. to understand the dynamics in, in boardrooms. And um, that really led to me saying, I want to write my experience about how do you navigate the environment of politics uh, to make your ideas thrive and survive yeah. and create a, a happy environment for, for people, right? So your book is packed with really great stories like that. that I mean, that is, it's just the one of the wonderful it, yes. things. Every, every other page has another story where you go, that can't be true. And then, but you know, it is right. And all yeah. those other things. <laughs> one of the stories that I love best was the story of the Scandinavian banker who came back from vacation and he had a picture that was drawn by his kid on, and he had reprimanded yeah. because he had a picture from his child on his desk yeah. and he got reprimanded. And you use that to go into this whole thing about 
compliance and how people are afraid of, you know, taking one misstep, even as you say, I mean, that shouldn't be an issue, but it was. How does the idea of that parlay into, you know, taking this too, too hard, too far, this idea, as you saw, the bureaucracy of this, and I'm going to go get my dog? <laughs> well, it's a, the issue here is that the common denominator is defining the entire universe, certainly, because what we're experiencing in generally is that we got to a point in our life where when you stick out in our society, uh, it's not seen as you're amazing. It's seen as you're sticking out your neck and you shouldn't do that. And I have to sadly tell you that I'm from Denmark originally. Uh, Denmark is part of the Nordic countries. And they have a special law. The law is called the Jante law. The, it's an unspoken law, which is very old. And it's really just a behavioral pattern. And when you stick out too much, uh, then you'll be cut down. And it was one of the reasons why I felt it was, was intriguing to see the rest of the world for a moment. Um, I think the issue we have right now in our society is we increasingly are dictated by a law. And the law comes in across everything. It's not a spoken law, it's an unspoken law, whether that is what you can say in meeting rooms. I'll be very frank with you. One of the things I do in meeting rooms is I swear a lot. And I do that because when I swear, it's almost like you can feel when people have a seatbelt on, it unbuckles. <laughs> like, I can be myself. We can't be ourselves anymore. I mean, we're so afraid of the ramifications of saying things, doing things, touching people, because it's always a second script. And I'll be frank with you guys. Yeah. As soon as I jump on a plane to the US, which I do very often, I put on a second script on into my head, which is, what can I say? Can I touch that person? Can I look that person in the eyes? Can I say these things? And that was not the case 10 years ago. And it doesn't mean that I'm against this and that. It just means that the free will has disappeared. And one of the things I wrote about in the, in the previous book called Small Data was that in the U.S., increasingly, you have safe zones. You go to Hooters when you want to see naked people. You go to stand-up comedian show when you want to say what you're thinking. You go to Disneyland when they, when you want to be a child inside. And we jump from these safe zones to other safe zones where it's been carved out. And in between, we just blend, mm. right? Because we can't express what we're thinking anymore. And that is extraordinarily dangerous because what happens is we restrict ourselves even before we're making a thought, you know? So, Bureaucracy is that, and in the workplace, it's become worse. And when you're doing Zooms and Teams calls, it's even worse because this conversation is recorded, right? So we have all these issues, and that's the reason why I wanted to write the book because I wanted to challenge people through humor and through a smile. Because it's a don't get me wrong here, I think it's pretty fun the book actually because it's, you are laughing about all the stupidities we're doing every day. <laughs> but I was oh at least laughing while I was writing the book, and and. My hope is that we can start a debate and say to ourselves, the pendulum has gone too far. Now it's time to adjust this because if you go even further, we kill ourselves in all this stuff, right? Yeah, um, I love that. Again, I think we need another two hours just on that. <laughs> but I do want to just ask real quickly, if you you talked about music very early on as this even foundational in sort of a religion of it, of it in and of itself. What two artists, musical artists, uh, catalogs would you take with you if you were to be stranded on a desert island for a year? 
I definitely would take Phil Collins and and it will be one of the artists. And and the reason I actually went to uh, his at his concert not once but twice. Uh, I think just before COVID, one in LA and one in London. And um, I was sitting there like a softy crying when he was on stage because he was not having the big show behind him with the screens and the fancy people dancing away. He was just there singing and he had a wonderful voice. And it was, and his catalog is, is very solid. And it, certainly, of course, it took me straight back in, in time to when I was young. Um, to, to the Genesis days? To exactly, primarily. exactly. And, and, yeah. But also, it was just quali- it's just quality music. And you could feel the audience loved him. And you could feel that he was in sync with the audience. And you really felt you were alive. I'm not sure I feel so much alive when you do uh, today's modern artists. Not, nothing against all of them, of course, but many of them, you do feel they're going through a blender to match uh, what statistically is correct to sing and do to sell more records, right? So definitely that would be uh, one of them. And do you know what? I would love to meet one of the classical you know, Mozart or Vivaldi or something the whole way down. Wouldn't that be amazing to understand how they can compose music or could compose music hundreds and hundreds of years ahead in time but still to this very day is played and is hitting a chord in our soul to take people back in a universe and it's universal it's independent of race it's independent of age it's independent of time my gosh to meet those people wouldn't that be amazing right yeah that would be amazing i think either mozart or or vivaldi with regardless of whatever you know, pop portrayals we've had of Mozart from movies in recent years. But yeah, yeah, that would be fantastic. I think that we are so grateful for your time for this very brief conversation, Martin. Uh, We wish you well in your travels and uh, thanks for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves. Tim, likewise, it's been an honor to be on your show, Kurt. I can only say, say hello to your dog and give him a bone for me. And <laughs> Not a bone, okay, but bone, I'm, okay. I'm hoping that he scared away the burglar that was trying to break into the house and, and, and then I can forgive him. But yeah, thank you. Thank you, Martin, and appreciate that. So. You're welcome. Take care, both. Bye for now. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Martin, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our non-commonsensical brains. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Common sense isn't always easy, is it? Well, not for you and me. I mean, for most people, I think it is. But for you and me, we no. we tend to, to, to overthink, to be too, oh. pro- I don't know. I what? Mean, who, who? Are you really talking about us? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, come on. Common sense is yeah. starting a, a podcast about behavioral oh science. God. I mean, what, what kind of common sense is that? Come on. Zero. <laughs> I, I think that rates about a zero. Yeah. So, so Kurt, what did you, so it was great that Martin shared, you know, that 30 minutes that he had before he had to leave for the airport in Paris. But so what, what did you take away from our conversation? Well, I think there's a lot to take away from. I mean, yeah. I, we could go in about, uh, you know, a number of things about phones and other kind of different pieces, which maybe we'll get to. Maybe, but I think maybe. really the big thing is, are we are we coming at this common sense thing, um, or, or not the common sense thing, that we're coming at business in particular in our lives too, from this efficiency rule kind of process orientation 
when it really needs to be more of a human question perspective, mm. that we need to be thinking about things from a common sense perspective. The idea that we can uh, radically make things so efficient and so well-oiled that there is nothing that is going yeah. to, you know, that every penny is going to be, you know, sucked out of a business, I think is just a, a way of, of leading to some things that are going to have unintended consequences and other aspects of it. Yeah, well said. And, and he talked about this. Uh, you and I have talked about this, like the pandemic and the the impact on just-in-time manufacturing, right? This is this was kind of a hot button for you, as I recall. Yeah, I think there's a there's a big piece of his book and, and the conversation we had that kind of comes into play. It's like, we need to be thinking about what are some of those common sense pieces of of working, of leading, of building these things that, you know, we often just kind of forget because we have rules or consequences or, or not consequences, rules or procedures in, in place. And this idea for just in time, and I go back to at the beginning of the pandemic when, you know, all this shit happened, we didn't know what was going on. And all of a sudden, you know, hospitals are running out of PPC. Right. right. They're running right. out of respirators. They're running out of all of these things mm -hmm. because they had been built on this model that, hey, there's storage costs for this. We have to up, you know, buy this and it's going to impact our quarterly returns and it's going to impact all the stuff. And what that did is it left us vulnerable for these times when stuff like this happens. And granted, they're rare, hopefully, right? Pandemic type things are rare. But they do happen. And the common sense piece is you need to be prepared for those because that's when you're going to need your PPC and your respirators and some right. of this other stuff. And so redundancy in you know the way things are done, having an oversupply of certain things that are necessary or required or needed or essential is common sense, but it isn't always come to play. That That's really well said. I, I, I reflect back on my undergraduate uh, degree and then going you know, getting my MBA in the early 90s, there was a, a lot of emphasis on the efficiency expert, mm. the idea of getting in and looking at a business analytically and saying, where can we cut costs? Where are the places that we can simply improve the bottom line by reducing inefficiencies? And, uh, you know, this has plagued, this absolutely bit us in the butt when it came to respirators yeah. to have to have a certain number of respirators available and say, well, we don't really need to repair this, you know, a whole bunch that are broken because we, you know, the likelihood of us using them is really low. But then, of course, when that very small percentage chance of using them happens, man, we needed a lot. Yeah. You know, we needed a lot all over the whole world. And the efficiency side of the story really killed us. No pun intended. Forgive the dark no, uh, pun there. No, but it, wor it, worked, it worked against us. And so, um, so the, the common sense thing also just, it, you, you use the word human, and I think that there's a behavioral side of it too, that common sense ought to be looking at what are the behaviors and, and things that we do for the, for the reasons that we do them and why did those things, you know, and those things need to sort of be identified and considered when choosing our business practices? Choosing our business practices. He, he, we didn't talk about this, but in his book, he has a whole chapter on kind of technology things and this idea that, oh, let's be efficient in different things. And we'll have meeting rooms where the lights turn out after five minutes oh, of right. non-movement. And he talks right. about 
being in these meetings and people having to, you know, in the middle of a presentation and the lights are going down because there wasn't enough movement in the room or, or being able to electronically book those pieces and yet they're being double booked and not letting you book a room that's wide yeah. open and different pieces like that. There are unintended consequences for some of these efficiency hacks that we're putting in. And particularly as it relates, I think, often to rules and procedures and the compliance side of things, we think we're doing things that are protecting us, but in in fact, we're just adding frictions. As Roger Dooley, right? We're adding a whole bunch of friction in to the processes here. And so when we think about that, when we think about this, you know, what Martin is saying is, Let's make sure that we're looking at the behavioral impacts of what's going on, right? Which is, I think, is what you're saying. This idea that some of these rules, these regulations, these procedures, while in, you know, theory sound great, in actual application, which is the applied behavioral science side of this, right? The behaviors, you know, it's like putting that little fence around the, the corner where your sidewalk is and what ends up happening is people go around that to walk around to to get the other thing. And so the path between the sidewalks gets, you know, just moved or different pieces. I saw it the other day. We were walking around the lakes here in Minneapolis. And, you know, over one of the bridges, I saw they had put some some fences up so that people wouldn't just go to down. To stop people yeah. from walking they just over went on the grass. That, you know, they, yeah. <laughs> so like it, they moved right. from one one right. one path that they made to a new path. Anyway. And that's that's human behavior. So yeah. So let's deal with that. You mentioned compliance. We need to get Christian Hunt, uh, our, our buddy Christian. <laughs> you know, and and his human. By the way, if you're not already a fan and listening to Human Risk yeah. podcast, we just want to recommend that because Christian's fantastic. But I think he's Christian, really Christian would go bonkers over this conversation. Yeah, because I mean, this is what he talks yeah. about, right? This yeah. this idea of compliance being important, and yet we go about it with the wrong way. We're not using common sense, as Martin would say. No, it's because the compliance officers have a different lens. They don't have a behavioral lens or a human lens. And, and, and of course, Christian's trying to bring that to, to the world. And I think we all need to be thinking about that. Yeah. I, I, can I just say one thing that I'm really glad that Martin Lindstrom does not carry a cell phone. I think that's a brilliant, you know, ability. I, I remember when we talked to Danny Oppenheimer uh, at, at Carnegie Mellon University and he came back from a year in London and his, his year overseas, he, you know, he and his wife just dropped the cell phone. I think that that's really cool. However, However. Not, not everybody has the luxury to do that. If you don't have a laptop to get all of your messages on, or you don't have an assistant to take your calls, things like that, it, it could be difficult to say the least. It could be, but the, but I think the the bigger insight from this is that we are using, and this goes back to Nir Eyal, right? And the conversation we had with Nir is this idea that we're using the phones as a crutch. This idea that when we're in a, a queue, when you're in a line, the queue is my British friends. Like, there you we go. were talking yeah. about Christian Hunt. So it must have primed my head about, you know, queues oh. and different things. The idea that when we're, we, we can't have a moment of boredom, that we can't have this downtime where we're not productive, which is the thing, again, I, I think about like plane rides used to be this 
you know, when I traveled a lot for work, they were these moments of of time for me just to sit back and not have yeah, to be yeah. on, not have to worry about what texts came in or what calls or what different pieces. And I could just sit there and think. And we don't have enough just sitting and thinking time. And I think there's a lesson from not having your cell phone. Do you need your cell phone with you all the time? I mean, people go, I, I can't leave home without it. Well, yeah, you can. You know, you if you're gone can, for an yeah. hour, life isn't going to end if you miss a call. Life isn't going right. to end if you don't get that text. And this is something that I think we too often forget. And it's a nice reminder. Now, granted, can I go without my cell phone? You know, it's my business phone. It's my, you know, it's how I connect with my kids. It's a whole bunch yeah. of other things. Yeah. Probably not. But are there times where... I should put it away? Are there times where I shouldn't need to have it sitting next to me right here, calling me, looking at me and saying, this is more exciting than talking with Tim right now. Oh my God. Look at this no, game isn't. I could be playing. Oh man. No, I, it's, it's not more exciting. No, it's just not. Just put that down. Oh, sorry. Stop sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> for, the, for those of you who can't see, because this is a podcast, Kurt's just totally getting into the phone. All right. Um, hey, man, you I, know, I, you know, uh, royal royal match. It's like this addictive game that I have on there. Anyway, there you go. I, I just, my, the last thing that I wanted to say just really briefly is that Martin's emphasis on human exchanges, sort of the behavioral side, reminds me of conversations we've had with Vanessa Bonds. You know, uh, you, you have more influence than you think. And, of course, Bob Cialdini and his great work on on persuasion. So much of, of those interactions happen in the human-to-human -human experience, in real life, yeah. in the same room, when we touch each other, when we greet each other. And, well, and, I, I and love, that's important. I, I do. I love this idea of that touch, that piece. John Barg talked about, you know, the best thing you could do for your kids is giving them a hug, right? And yeah, all these kind of different pieces. Yeah. But this idea, too, he talked about empathy. He talked about common sense is really about being able to put yourselves in other people's shoes and having that empathy. And it goes back to just the, the, the conversation we just had with Andrea Belk Olson talking about this idea of getting out there for business. How do you have yeah. empathy with your customers? Well, you go out and you talk to your customers and you yeah. interact with your customers. And so and you shake hands, as you said, with your customers and don't yeah. be sitting back in the back. But yeah, I think that human touch piece, that human connecting is a really important thing. And we often forget about it. Yeah. Well, I think that about wraps it up. What do you, what do you think, Kurt? I think it does. That's, yeah. That'll do it. As always, Groovers, we want to thank you for listening. We truly appreciate you spending time with us. And we hope that you got something out of our conversation with Martin Lindstrom today. Yeah, I hope you got some common sense that you can just take and, and use. And Because Tim and I don't have it. But you, you, our but listeners, you. I know you guys have you common could, sense. You could do it. You could go where we haven't gone. Yes. <laughs> so with that, go take some common sense and go out and find your groove. <laughs>